0: have a Bible, you can open up to Ruth chapter 3. We're going to continue our uh, study throughout this book, and uh, we're going to be in chapter 3 today looking at the whole chapter. If you don't have a Bible, you can put your hand up. You're going to want to follow along. We're covering a lot of ground, or you can turn your app on, find that on your phone or whatever suits you. But if you put your hand up, one of the men will get you a Bible and you can follow along that way. If you don't have a Bible, you can go ahead and take that one home that we provide for you, and uh, you can have that as as a gift from us. Um, but again, uh, glad you're here. Welcome uh, to Union Church, and I'm really glad to uh, be worshiping with you this morning. And I just want to say this, um, you know, uh, we sing these songs that are full of, of, of Bible and Scripture and doctrine and truths about God, and also full of human emotions and expressions and all of that sort of thing. And um, the, the time we devote to prayer and the reading of Scripture, all of these things, um, can be very encouraging and very, um, cause, cause great reflection in us and cause us and help us uh, to understand God more and to teach us more about God and who he is and who we are in him. I, I also know that as we come to church this morning and, and any Sunday, but as we come here this morning, we're gathered together and we know I know that uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of needs in this room. There's a lot of challenges that we've faced this week. We have a family in the church who's experienced some loss this week. And they're grieving right now. I know many of you um, have experienced loss in the last months or year. You've experienced difficulties, maybe emotional difficulties or financial difficulties or physical ailments, uh, psychological ailments, concern or anxiety. And I, I just realized that there's all kinds and 10,000 other things that I can't just rattle off. There's all sorts of needs and, and issues and concerns and burdens and weights that are on many of us. And I just want to invite you this morning to receive from Jesus through his word. We know that uh, we don't live by bread alone. We know that uh, we don't direct our own path. We know that we can't create our own light to guide us through a dark world. But his word is actually the lamp that guides our path, the light that illuminates our vision And His Word is how we connect with Him. God's Word is how we connect with Him and know Him and commune with Him. And so I just want to invite you wherever you're at. Maybe you're coming off a great week and you're super encouraged, awesome. Maybe you're not. Maybe like me, uh, you know, you've had a long week and maybe you snapped this morning and uh, maybe you need to say sorry. Maybe uh, you are burdened with some sort of concern wherever you're at, friends. I just want to invite you to receive from Jesus and His Word this morning, Amen. You can turn to Ruth chapter 3. I also want to point out that um, last weekend was Sanctity of Life Sunday, which is just a nationally recognized day where we appreciate, value, and normally preach uh, a sermon that is in regards to Sanctity of Life. We're in Ruth right now, um, and so we didn't do that last week. We normally do do that. It's not always on that day, though, because sometimes it just doesn't work out schedule-wise. We're going to do a Sanctity of Life Sunday in February. So you can mark that down. I think February 20th is what it is. And we're going to have some, uh, some folks out, some representatives out from the Pregnancy Resource Center. We're going to recognize that day. Um, we're going to do a special, special message on that day. And so you can mark that in your calendar if any of you were wondering, why didn't we recognize sanctity of Human Life last Sunday? We're doing it in February. And so um, you, can, uh, you can mark that down. Ruth chapter 3, um, you can open up there and uh, we will jump into God's Word. We have a lot of ground to cover Just to catch you up to speed, um, Ruth at this point, Ruth is a Moabite gal um, who came from the land of Moab to the land of Israel following her mother-in-law, Naomi. Her husband died, her father-in-law died, her father-in-law was a man named Elimelech, who was one of God's people from the nation of Israel. He upped and moved his family from Israel to Moab during a famine in Israel. Instead of asking God for uh, grace and favor and repenting of sin and asking for God's provision for his land... What he did was say, well, instead, I'm just going to seek greener pastures, I'm going to leave the land of promise, and I'm going to go over to this land of Moab. It's a pagan land, it's a land that's far from God, it's dark, it's sinful, it's not a place for God's people, it's not a place to raise a godly family, it's a place that had really bad blood with Israel, and it was not a place where God wanted his people to settle. No church there, no community there, no spiritual health, but there's some food there, Limelech thought, so he moved his family there, and then he died because God's in control of life and death. He moved his family there to prevent death, and then he died. We see God's providential hand in that, and his two sons both died. They took wives, but they both died. And both of those women were Moabite women, and they now were with their mother-in-law, who's the sole surviving member of this family. And she says, I'm gonna go back to Jerusalem, or Israel, rather, Judah, to Bethlehem. I'm gonna go back to Bethlehem. It, it, it sounds like I've heard that God has been good, and that he's provided food and grain, and everything that we need again, so I'm going to go back there because now the grass seems greener over there. One of the daughter-in-law's Orpah, she decides to go back to Moab and her false gods, and Ruth says, no, I'm going to stay with you. So she follows in faith, she follows Naomi, and she commits to Naomi's God, Yahweh, she becomes a Christian, and she follows Naomi back to Israel, back to Bethlehem. Ruth then meets a man named Boaz. We looked at that last week. You can go and listen to the sermon. And Boaz was a man of of war, wealth, and wherewithal. He was that kind of man. He was tough. He had grit. He knew what to do. He had a business. He had employees. He learned how to figure things out. But he was also good and gracious and generous. And he met this foreign woman who he provided for. He provided for her needs and the needs of her mother-in-law, Naomi. And he was gracious to her. He didn't have to be, but he chose to be. He was, I told you last week, I got the impression that he, Boaz, was looking for an opportunity to meet this foreign woman whose whose reputation had already spread far and wide, and how she was so good to her mother-in-law and loyal, and he just wanted to bless her and serve her, and so he provided for all of her needs and all of Naomi's needs. We saw how he looks a little bit like Jesus there. We're going to see some more of that this week. So that's where we left off as we get into chapter 3. And as we look at this chapter, it's a bit strange. If you read ahead, you were probably like, what are you going to do with this? This is a strange chapter. It looks a little bit weird. There's weird stuff going on here. And. If you interpret it wrongly, you could go way off in the woods and start to do weird things and say, I'm being biblical, and so I sneak into people's homes, and I creep out on them, and then I uncover their blankets, and I ask them to marry me. No, don't, don't do that. There's, they don't do that. We're going to try to unpack that for you rightly this morning, but we're going to take it scene by scene. And character by character, three main characters, as you've noticed throughout the book, uh, three main characters in this chapter as well, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. They're the three people who have the most dialogue, and um, they are the three characters that now the narrator kind of hones in on. And so we're going to take this scene by scene. And the first scene is Naomi's resolution. Naomi's resolution. If you're a note taker and uh, you have a bulletin, you can write that down for point number one, Naomi's resolution. Naomi's resolution. Let's start reading in chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, that's Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Okay. Naomi's needs have been met. Naomi has been provided for by God. We've seen in in, in the previous chapter that, that her hearts began to soften that she's began to realize God's been good to me and God's provided for me and his hand of providence is, has really given me everything I need. Before that, she was a bitter old hag, right? That's what Mara means. She says, my name's no longer Naomi, it's Mara. In the Hebrew, that means bitter old hag. It means not very nice, not very fun, kind of hard to be around. She was bitter, she was angry at God, she was upset at her station in life and God now was softening her heart. Look back with me at verse 20 of chapter two. Ruth comes back and reports to Naomi all the goodness that she had received from Boaz. Verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, the Lord has shown us kindness, has said, love, compassion, goodness, faithfulness. The Lord's has said has not forsaken the living or the dead. Okay, so Naomi's heart is beginning to soften and now she's beginning to consider Ruth and not just herself. Her eyes are coming off herself and moving on to Ruth. You have needs, she says to Ruth. You have issues, that need to be taken care of. You need more security and provision than I can provide for you. You have been faithful to me. Ruth has been faithful to Naomi. You have been faithful to me. And now we need to focus on your needs. You need provision. You need protection. You need a husband. I have an idea. Naomi has an idea. Verse two, here's her idea. How about... Boaz is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were with. He is winnowing out the barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. How about Boaz? This is her plan. Remember, Boaz is a man of war. He's tough. He has grit, right? He's a man's man. He's a man of wealth, right? He has resources. He's done well in the world. He's A better way to say that would be he's been a good steward of what God has given him, and he's multiplied and not just squandered on foolish living and foolish spending. He doesn't just seek to have a good time. He seeks to actually build wealth and to be generous with his wealth. God provides that, Boaz has multiplied it and been faithful with that. He's also a man of wherewithal. He knows what to do. He, he, He knows where to go. He knows how to do things. He's aware of his surroundings. He's that sort of man. He's the man, Naomi says, that can provide you with protection and security and provision. That's the kind of man you'd like to marry, isn't it? After all. Now, let me give you a bit of a time frame here so we can kind of locate where we're at in the story. The end of chapter 1, you'll see verse 22, the end of verse 22, they're arriving in Bethlehem and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Okay, so that's when they get to Bethlehem. Now, verse 23 of chapter 2, end part of that verse, she was with, Ruth was with the young woman of Boaz gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And that's the time now that we're at in chapter 3. So from chapter 1 to chapter 3, we have six, seven, eight weeks, beginning of the harvest to the end of the harvest. The end of the harvest is coming up now. So it's been seven, eight weeks. And Ruth, though she had a connection with Boaz, uh, he was good to her. They began to build a relationship. It was non-romantic. He was just being good and almost fatherly to her. But nonetheless, uh, there was no further romantic move from Boaz. Now, I think Naomi was maybe hoping for that to kind of just emerge naturally. We see that again, chapter 2, verse 20. Naomi says, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Okay, we're going to see what that means later in this chapter. But what she's saying there is, huh, maybe this could work. Maybe there could be some connection here. She doesn't say that, but that's kind of in the back of her mind. But now it's been six, seven, eight weeks, and nothing's happened. There's been no progress in that. Boaz hasn't made a move. He hasn't made an advance of any sort. That's important because it tells us a couple of things. It tells us first that that Boaz didn't have any ulterior motives when he was being good and gracious and generous to Ruth. He didn't have ulterior motives. So when Boaz was giving her weeks worth of food, when Boaz was being kind and gracious to her, when Boaz was praying over her, when Boaz says, hey, you can be on my lands. I'm going to protect you. None of the guys here will do anything to you. You don't have to worry about that. You can drink water. You can have food. You can take a lot of food home. You don't got to worry about anything anymore, sweetheart. That's what he was saying, basically. And, And it shows us that the fact that he didn't then move forward with a romantic advance, it shows us he didn't have any ulterior motives. He wasn't thinking, well, I'll do all these things with the hopes that maybe it'll kind of sway Ruth and she'll kind of start to, you know, fall for me. That wasn't happening there. It also indicates possibly that Boaz was respecting Ruth's mourning period. Remember, Ruth's husband has died, and Ruth would have been mourning for some time and would have given public indicators and signals of that, possibly with her dress, her her clothing, maybe other symbols. Of that, that would indicate that she was grieving and mourning. We don't have a ton of detail on that, so we don't have any clarity really on how long that would have lasted for. It's possible though that Ruth is still in this mourning phase and that Boaz recognized that and respects it because he's an honorable and good man. In addition, if Boaz did have feelings for Ruth, if they did begin to develop at some low simmering level, We know about Boaz that he certainly would not want to use his position or his authority or generosity as leverage or influence over Ruth. Cruel and evil and sick men do that, not Boaz. So it's been six, seven, eight weeks, no progress. Naomi's needs have been met. She recognizes God's faithfulness, his providence, his provision. But she wants more for Ruth, and so she pitches this plan. Why don't you get prettied up, go take a shower. You've been working hard all day, gleaning. Go take a shower, get dressed, put your cloak on. Go and do that, and then here's our plan. I think you should go to the threshing floor. You should wake Boaz up after he lies down, and you should present yourself to him And then he will tell you what to do. That's the plan. Now, I want to say this. All throughout the book of Ruth, we have seen God's invisible hand of providence. I told you at the beginning of this series that providence is is one of, if not the major theme of Ruth, Ruth, God's providence. God's invisible hand that is guiding and directing and deciding all of human history and and our lives. It's, It's God's providential hand it's his sovereignty and his goodness those two things meet and they manifest in his in his providence god is sovereign and he's good and all of his providential direction is for the good of his people ultimately those verses we read in romans indicate that for us that god works our lives and situations and 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 world events together for his glory and for our good Okay, so we know that. We've seen God's providence at work in Ruth. We're gonna see it here again uh, in chapter three. And, and I hope, church, that hearing and learning of God's providence these past weeks, I hope that that's been a great encouragement to you. I hope it's brought in you great comfort to understand how God is at work in our lives, not just in some pithy, trite way, but actually, God actually, Guides and leads and decides all of human history. And because he's sovereign and he's good, we should be comforted by that. We should take hold of that truth and it should bring us encouragement. We need that for ourselves daily. As we live, breathe, love our families, go to our jobs, love our church well make regular decisions in life. We need to understand God's providence. We also need to understand it, bigger picture, and the cultural climate we live in. We live in a crazy time, don't we? What a time to be alive. I read this satirical news article this week that many of you probably saw, and uh, it had a picture of these Christians. they were like a bunch of like 20 or 30 year old Christian you know, not, they were just people, and uh, they're actors, and, but that was the picture. And they like had drinks in their hand. They're smiling, and 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 the headline said, "American Christians excited to live through the Book of Judges firsthand." <laughs> you got to love that. Just sitting there with their cappuccinos or whatever. We do live in the Book of Judges to some degree. We're experiencing a sexual revolution um, that is just wild. In our nation, child sacrifice is legal. A million children a year are uh, sacrificed, killed on the altar of uh, modern Molech. That's violence and uh, destruction and immorality, you realize, on a, on a far grander scale than anything in the book of Judges. You read the book of Judges, you're like, oh. That is horrible. How could that happen? Well, we kill a million kids a year legally. Consider that. It's estimated that uh, in World War II, the total amount of Jews that were killed in the Nazi Holocaust was six million, maybe more. One of the worst Holocausts in human history. I mean, absolutely horrible and terrifying, horrific and graphic. If you study World War II, if you study the Holocaust, you almost, you almost don't want to. It's, it's almost too difficult. Six million. We've killed ten times that amount of children in the last 45, 6, 7, 8, whatever it is. Less than 50 years. We've killed ten times that amount of children. That's wild. Can't even comprehend that. Total numbers for World War II, I think, is somewhere between 75, 85 million We're almost to total World War II casualties just through abortion. Incredible. Not to mention the increased marginalization and oppression of religious freedom, again, sexual revolution, all kinds of things that if we really um, spent a lot of our time stewing on, we'd probably be freaking out. We live in a crazy time in all of this. We look at the world and we're like, what is going on? On the other hand, we look at God and we realize your, your providential hand is at work in all of this. I don't know what that's going to be like. I don't know how that's going to turn out. I don't know what you're doing through this, but you are sovereign. You are good. Your providence is in control of all of this stuff. And so we can trust God. We can trust that he's sovereign. We can trust that he's Good. Some verses for you on the screen. Will you put that first one, I think, from Proverbs? The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare. Man, there's so many things we can be scared of. There's so many people that we can be scared of. We can be scared of their opinion, individuals. We can be scared of public opinion. We can be scared of all sorts of things. And and when that happens, when we fear man over God, a snare is laid and we step right into it as we begin to fear man over God. And we enter into a place where we're not safe, where we're actually open to attack, where we're actually vulnerable But he who trusts in the Lord is safe. He who trusts in God and his sovereignty and his goodness and his providence is safe. Next verse. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That's God's goodness, provision, providence in our lives. Next verse. We'll come back to that one later. We can trust in God's providence, church, in his goodness, in his sovereignty. That being said, I need to point this out as well. Understanding God's providence and recognizing it exists does not mean that we sit around and wait for God to do stuff. It doesn't mean we just kick back and wait for God to act. We don't gotta do nothing, we're good. We're just gonna sit back, get a drink, chill out, watch the game, and God will just handle stuff. We don't even have to think about it. That's not what providence is. That's not what providence means. Sometimes we have to trust God and patiently wait to be sure. Sometimes God uh, really reveals to us how little control we actually have and he makes us wait. I mean, how many of you have been in a situation like that where you're like, I'm really learning patience. I'm really learning that I'm not in control. I'm really learning that I can't that I can't affect a bunch of change here. I have to wait for God. I have to wait on God. Sometimes we have to be patient and wait. Sometimes we have to trust God and take action. That's what Naomi's doing. Have you experienced health problems? Are you ill? Is it getting increasingly worse? I know some of you are or have. Well, you don't sit around and say, God will deal with this. Don't gotta do nothing. Instead, you trust God and then you go to the doctor. You trust God, and then you go to the doctor. Are you in a bad relationship that you really need to get out of? We don't sit around and say, well, maybe God will use this for good. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. You trust God, and then you break up. You break up. You say, hey, soon-to-be ex-girlfriend, soon-to-be ex-boyfriend. Oh, sorry, that's what I'm calling about. That's what I got to say to you. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know it's painful. Well, maybe I'll just wait for this to happen or maybe I'll wait for this or maybe I'll see what happens here. Maybe, no, don't be foolish. Don't do that. Trust God and take action. Trust God and take action. Maybe you want to get in a relationship. You're like, I'm getting older and need to get married, need to find a wife, need to find a husband, need to make that happen. Trust God and put yourself out there right? You don't just, we don't just sit in our apartments and say, well, I hope she'll walk in the door. I'm hoping that God, because he's sovereign, right? So I'm hoping that eventually I'll just hear, dick, dick, dick. oh, there she is. She just came over, and she's rich, so I don't have to work either. Perfect. <laughs> God just took care of everything. Oh, and look at! She came in, and she's, she's already clean. She's cleaning up my mess. That's perfect. Like, how many guys are like, I just want a gal who's rich, Pretty and can just clean this mess that I'm this total mess that I'm sitting in. You ever been to a you ever been to a bachelor pad? (laughs) Usually ain't too pretty. Do you need a job? Well, yeah, trust God and, and start learning and working hard and applying. Right? Some of these things are obvious, but for the sake of illustration, sometimes we trust God and wait patiently. Sometimes we trust God and take action. Okay, we do the best we can to follow the scriptures, to seek. Counsel, to heed counsel, not just be ready to field advice, but seek counsel, and then heed it not to be wise in our own eyes, right? But do it with counsel. We make wise plans, we entrust them to God, and we execute. Now that verse, Kylie of Proverbs sixteen three. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established, okay? So so this part, we have to do this. God has created us as rational creatures with with minds. He's created us as creatures that know how to figure things out, that know how to think ahead, that understand time, that have some concept of time. And so he has told us, commit your work to the Lord, make plans, figure it out, put it on paper, seek counsel, and then give it to the Lord and your plans will be established by him. Sometimes he changes them, but he's the one who establishes them. That's his providence. So we make plans, we trust God, we execute the plans, and we trust his providence. That's what Naomi's doing here. She's trusting God and she makes a plan. Now, her plan, just listen, all, everything I just said is true, but her plan seems a bit odd. Seems a little odd, Right? She's trusting God, and she's making a plan. She's doing the right thing. But if you look at her plan, it just seems a little bit odd. It's slightly vague, and it's very risky. I'll tell you why in a second. But here's what we do know. We know that, that her intent, Naomi's intent, is for the good of Ruth. God has softened her heart, and, and she's focused on Ruth now. So her intent is for the good of Ruth. We also know that she has great confidence in the character of Boaz. She has great confidence in the character of Boaz. Look back at verse 4, chapter 3. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies, go and cover his feet, lie down. Sketchy Naomi. Okay, but listen. Listen, he will tell you what to do. That's a, that's a big, that's big confidence. She has big confidence in his character. Verse five, and she replied, all that you say, I will do. Ruth agrees, and she goes to do it. The plan has been hatched. Ruth agrees, and now she's about to execute. This brings us to scene two and point two, Ruth's request, Ruth's request. Verse six, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten, And drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, and uncovered his feet, and lay down, and at midnight the man was startled, and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Okay, so if you've never read your Bible before, just, I'm going to explain this to you, I promise. You're like, this book is different than I thought. It's so like, yeah, just, just trust me, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll get there, we'll get there. This is a bit weird, for sure, and that's an understatement. Boaz, here's the scene, Boaz is working all day, he's a hard worker, he's there with his guys, uh, man, he's just, he's just harvesting stuff, okay, he's working all day, he goes, says, man, I've had a full day's work, I'm going to have a good meal, I'm going to have some glasses of wine, it's going to be a good night. I'm going to just enjoy what God has given me, and I'm going to rejoice and celebrate. I'm really thankful, and then I'm going to sleep like a log. In the middle of the night, Ruth sneaks in. Okay, she creeps in to the threshing floor. She lays down. Now, it was common at this time of year for men to sleep at the threshing floor like this who are working in the fields. Um, it was warmer out, and they would lay down next to their product to guard it from marauding animals, from thieves, whatever. Okay, so that's kind of where this is happening. It's kind of more open air. It was also common in that time when men would do that that time of year for prostitutes to approach men and proposition themselves for work, okay? So that is kind of laying there in the context too. So that's what's happening. Boaz is now asleep. One commentator says that this is a man, now this is not like a night of like debauchery and partying. It's not that sort of thing. He's eating, he's drinking, he's worked, he's having a good time, for sure, because Christians can have a good time. And, and one, one commentator says, this is a man who is, he says something like, who is enjoying the fruit of what God has given him and who is at peace with God. He's at peace with God, enjoying God's good gifts. He's had a good day and now he's asleep. The scene is set, Ruth sneaks in, that's the context, now here's the ask. Verse nine, verse eight rather, at midnight, The man was startled. You would be too. And he turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? It's dark out, right? You know, you wake up in the middle of the night, everything's black, your eyes haven't adapted. She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Again, do not repeat this. (laughs) Guys, if you do this to a gal, you will go to jail. (laughs) Gals, if you do this... Just don't. It's not a good idea, okay? It's not a good idea. But listen, here's the ask. Will you marry me? That is what she's saying. This is a marriage proposal. Part of the idea here is if she would have just approached Boaz in the field where they would normally interact, that would be very weird. That would that'd be strange, now, this is a bigger risk in a different way, but she wanted to make sure that he was also honored in this whole thing. So, she, so Naomi's trying to figure out a way to do this on the down low. That's what's happening here. And so she sneaks in and says, Boaz, you've been working all day? You've had a good night? Will you marry me? That's what's happening here. This is hugely risky. And I'm gonna give you a few obvious reasons why. Number one, Boaz could have interpreted this He was the most crass one at least. Boaz could have interpreted this as a proposition from a prostitute. He could have said, Oh, this is what prostitutes do, Ruth is being like that, and then said, sure, taking advantage of her. That's possible. Number two, Boaz could have Boaz could have interpreted this as Ruth was mimicking a prostitute and just turned her away. But their relationship would have been ruined, her credibility would have been ruined. Uh, Ruth's reputation would have been ruined. Risky. Number three, Boaz could have understood, it's possible he could have understood Ruth's true intent and just graciously turned her down. That's possible. Then it would be over, it'd be done. Again, the relationship would be ruined, it'd be some real damage and um, fallout. Fourth option, of course, is that Boaz understands her true intent and then responds favorably. And that's what Ruth is hoping for. In addition, just to add some extra flavor to how she would have viewed this and how risky it would have been, she was a woman, he was a man. And that, In that day, um, you, didn't just have, you didn't just have regular conversations with people who didn't know each other that well who were of the opposite sex. She's a woman, he's a man. And she's making the advance on him. That was totally out of place. She is poor. He is wealthy. There's a big gap in social status. She is young. He is older. There's a big gap in their age. She is a foreigner. He is a native. There's a lot here that would possibly prevent Ruth from doing this. And taking all those things into consideration and still stepping out in faith is a big risk. I mean, you guys who are married, do you remember asking your wife out for the first time? Do you? you probably forgotten because you were so embarrassed. I mean, I literally, when I, when I asked my wife to marry, for, when I got engaged to my wife, I, all I remember is like, okay, I'm going to do this, do this, open the box, blacked out. And then I just remember like five minutes later, you know, life, five minutes later. I didn't actually like black out, like fall. I'm saying my memory is like blacked out because I was so nervous. I was so, so nervous. I don't know, if, I'm sure many of you guys, you go ask your wife, okay, there's a lot on the line here. What if she says no? What if it ruins our friendship? I don't know. What if there's something else going on? For you guys and gals who are, um, particularly guys, because normally guys ask gals out and that's how it should be, um, particularly you guys who are single, you haven't asked the gal out who you want to ask out because you're nervous. So you could put yourself in this position. There's risk involved. It's a a big ask. Something bad could happen. Now consider all of her risk. Significantly, significantly more. She has a lot on the line. How will he answer? This brings us to scene three. Boaz's response. Boaz's response. Verse 10. He said... May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Ruth's heart is pounding. Her hands are shaking. Her breathing is shallow. She's put everything on the line. What's he going to say? And his response is one of absolute favor. Absolute favor. Don't have any fear. Don't say another word about it. You don't have to beg. You don't have to plead. I have heard you. I get it. The situation's a little weird, but I will do what you want. I will redeem your family. I will marry you. I want you to notice verse 10. Boaz says, your kindness, this kindness, this last kindness is greater than the first. That's our little word, said. We looked at that last week. God's, well, it's normally used in terms of God, but the word means, means it's hard to pin down into one English word. Everlasting love, everlasting commitment, loyalty, Service, goodness, generosity, compassion, faithfulness, everlasting faithfulness. It means all of those sorts of things. And Boaz says, your hesed here has been greater than the first. Now we have to ask a question. How is this action on the part of Ruth demonstrating hesed? Hesed is compassion, love, thoughtfulness, and generosity, loyalty towards another. How is Ruth's action here demonstrating said? Because we could say, on one hand, we could say, we could look at this and think, well, this benefits Ruth. This situation benefits Ruth. And on one hand, I mean, there's definitely truth in that. In the end, she, she will receive certainly some benefit from this. But there's more here than that. Boaz points out in verse 10 that in doing what she has done, Ruth is demonstrated a few things. Number one, she's considering Naomi's well-being above her own. Do you realize that? In doing this, Ruth is considering Naomi's well-being above her own. The fact that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, and we're gonna, I'm going to define that for you in a moment, but the fact that he's a redeemer is of more benefit to Naomi than it is to Ruth He previously commended Ruth's love, her has said, for Naomi, uh, I think in chapter two. I mean, he he said, I've heard of your loyalty, your kindness, and your courage following Naomi. You have been good to her. I'm going to be good to you. And now he says, This has said is even greater than the last. In addition, her willingness to do this also demonstrates to Boaz her respect and her admiration of him. He says, you already have proven character. Everyone knows you're a worthy woman. In just a few short months, Ruth has proven herself as a worthy woman, worthy of honor, worthy of respect, worthy uh, uh, of of, of all of those sorts of things. You are an admirable woman. That's the reputation she had already gained for herself. Boaz says, hey, look, you have options. You have options. You've earned this reputation. He realizes that he is older, and a man like Boaz is not a likely first pick for a gal like Ruth. She has options. She could have gone after a much younger man, rich or poor. Basically, he's saying, you could have gone after anyone who is younger than me, who would have been a better match for you, who would have looked better than me, who would have been in a similar season of life, and yet you have chosen to not do that. You have chosen to actually pursue me. Instead of choosing a merely outwardly compatible match, she chooses him. This may not be a match of great social normalcy. This may not be a match in status. It's not a match in looks. It's not a match in age. It's a match in character. This is a match in character. Ruth looks beyond the superficial and into the deeper substance of the man. This risk is motivated by said on both counts, towards Naomi and towards him. Uh, gentlemen and ladies as well, look beyond the superficial. I'm not saying none of those things. The first, anytime I say the first, it's like, well, don't I have to think my wife is pretty? Yes, okay, yes, bro. I'm not, I'm not saying you don't, Okay. <laughs> Don't jump to crazy conclusions because that's all you're thinking about. That's why you jump to that conclusion, okay? FYI, that's why you jump to that conclusion. What I'm saying is what's more important than that is character. Your match needs to be a match of character. That is so much more important. There's a lot of things that are important, and that's the most important, okay? You need someone who loves Jesus like you do. You need someone who wants to worship the Lord like you do. You need somebody who's committed to church like you are. You need somebody who's going to point you to Jesus, not somebody who you're going to be tagging along. Come on, come on. Okay, you checked the box. You have said you're a Christian. That's all I need. Everything else is, not nothing's really there. This isn't healthy, but come on, come on. I'm going I'm I'm to tag you. I'm going I'm to carry you along. Come on, don't do that. You need a match of character. Ruth here looks at Boaz, and their match is one of character. She pursues Boaz because they have a match of character. So this risk, God's hand, his providence, is present in Ruth's risk. And her risk is motivated by his said. By his said. She trusted God. She trusted his hand of providence. It's present and it's obvious. And he responded in favor. Consider risks you face in life, church. God's hand is present in her risk. That's the whole point of this This particular sermon is that God's providence is present in our risks. What risks do you take in life? Sometimes we take risks that are directly related to the gospel ministry that we're part of. We take risks for Jesus, for the gospel, for kingdom expansion. Telling your neighbor about Jesus, having that conversation, what the Bible will call, what we would call evangelism, uh, is risky. It's risky. Having an, what we call an outward face, right? Thinking about others, serving others, having a mind to love and care for others and not just thinking inwardly about our own needs and what do I need, what's best for me, what's most comfortable for me. That's our natural posture. And so switching that posture towards a biblical outward face is risky. It's risky. Right, hospitality is risky. Meeting new folks is risky. It's so much easier for us to say, hey, you're my best friend here. A church, on the patio, I'm going to talk to you and my best friend. Let's just hug each other. And all those people over there that I've never met, oh, looks like they're gone now. We've had a, such a good conversation because we're best friends. Right, that's not risky. That's comfortable. It's not bad. It's just comfortable. Sometimes we need to risk in small ways, but nonetheless risk. Being faithful and unashamed of your testimony of Christ in a secular world is is Risky. You're part of a church plant. Church planting is risky. I can give you lots of stories about risk. You can ask my wife about risk. Um, To see her, for example, embracing the risk that God has called her to and being steady and faithful and loyal and on track and on mission for the last few years now is absolutely incredible. That's God's hand working in her risk. You can think of other families that uh, are among us right now um, who left something comfortable and familiar to be part of a, of a new mission. And I tell you what, that's risky. It's risky, It's good to step out, isn't it? It's good to step out in faith. It's good to take risks. It's good to trust God. It's good to trust God. Sometimes we take risks for our gospel ministry. Sometimes we take risks that don't seem directly connected or related to gospel ministry, though everything in some way might come back to that. There's lots of things we do in life that are not directly related to gospel ministry, right? As God's people, we must trust his hand of providence in all areas, not just the ones that seem overtly spiritual. We're spiritual beings everywhere, not just at church, right? Amen? We're spiritual beings everywhere. Risk is not a foolish gamble, but wisely, prayerfully, considering, making plans, and trusting them to God. Okay, think about your marriage. When you get married, that's a risk. Okay, you get married and now you have new financial risks. Having kids is a risk. Letting your kids go and play on their own is a risk. But it's good for them. Adoption is a risk. We have Darren and Julie, who you you know and have met. Many of you have given to their adoption fund. They have an adoption fund that we host here at the church. And you can give to their adoption fund. They're spending like 50 grand to adopt a child that's a huge risk. They're not super rich, just so you know. The Darren's are hard worker, they do fine. I'm just saying, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That's my only point. That's a lot of money. It's a big, big risk. Should I buy a house? Should I save to buy a house? Or should I adopt a child? I mean, think about that. Giving to their adoption fund is a risk. I'm generous with my church. I'm generous in these areas. Can I go above and beyond? It's going to be tight, but I'm going to do it. Because I believe in that, I'm gonna take a small little risk here and I'm gonna to give to that because, man, that's, that's such a good thing to step out in faith on and I wanna help support and love my brothers and sisters so that we can welcome a new little child into our church family and into their, their family. Because we need to trust God's hand of providence in all areas, in all areas. Consider your job, consider a big move, consider your kid's school, consider you, if you're applying to colleges, again, Proverbs 16:3, we make our plans, we commit our plans to the Lord, and then he establishes them. So we do our best to plan and prepare, but ultimately we have to entrust our risks to the Lord, both big and small. Don't, don't compartmentalize this sort of thing to just spiritual like evangelism. Don't just compartmentalize it to things that seem overtly spiritual. We need to understand this in all areas of life. This is what Ruth Ruth did. Boaz's response is one of favor. I will do everything you want. Fear not. Okay, verse 11 again. Things get a little bit twisty here. And now, my daughter, do not fear. Again, I'll do for you all that you ask. Everyone knows that you're a worthy woman. Verse 12, now it's true that I'm a redeemer. And yet, here's where it gets twisty. And yet, there is a redeemer nearer than I Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. If he is not willing to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Either way, Ruth, you're going to get taken care of. Lie down until the morning. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize the other. And he said, let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor and he said, bring your garment that you're wearing, hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley, lots of barley. He's saying, look, we, don't, we want this to be above reproach here. Nothing weird happened. Take this barley, go home. And she went into the city. That should be translated, he went into the city. He went into the city. And here's the significance of that. The sun hasn't even risen yet. Boaz has probably not gotten any sleep. It's on his mind to get this thing resolved. And so he goes into the city. Verse 16, when he came to her, when she came, rather Ruth now, to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her everything that happened and all that he had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me and he said to me, you must not go back him to hand it to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest but will settle the matter today. He's not gonna sit around and just wait for something to happen. He's a man of action. He does things. He gets things done. He's reliable. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. He goes and gets it done. Okay, that's what we're going to see in chapter 4. Boaz basically says, I want to do this, but there's one nearer than me. I need to explain what a redeemer is to you very briefly as we wrap up here. In this day, if you were in debt, you could sell your property and deed it out in order to pay off that debt, but you always had the right to buy it back as long as you could pay the debts off. And if you couldn't buy it back, one of your family members who was near to you, near relative, could do that for you if they could afford it. That is the kinsman redeemer, the one who could do it for them. Now, there are a couple qualifications to be a kinsman redeemer, a few things you needed to have. Number one, you needed to have the right. You'd have to be in the family line. You'd have to be close enough to them. You'd have to be related, part of their clan, part of the family. You'd have to have the right Number two, you'd have to have the resources. You'd have to be able to afford it. Number three, you'd have to have the resolve. You'd have to want to do it. There's a problem here with Boaz's right. We're going to see how that gets worked out next week. But ultimately, in the end, Boaz meets these three qualifications to redeem these two women and some land apparently they had previously had there when they lived there with Naomi's husband. Naomi has the right I mean, excuse me, Boaz has the right. Boaz also has the resources. He's wealthy, right? He's rich. Boaz is rich. And here was the big risk that Ruth was trying to sort out that night. Does he have the resolve? Does he want to do this? Does he want to? And the answer now is yes. He has the resolve. We're going to see how this concludes in chapter 4. Um, as we always need to do, because all scripture and all sermons and all passages point to Jesus, and I need to now connect this for you to Jesus, because we learned last week that Boaz is the lesser Jesus. Jesus is the greater Boaz. Boaz is what theologians call a type of Christ. He points to Christ. He's a shadow of what's to come. Boaz has the right to redeem Ruth. He has the resources to redeem Ruth, and now we know he has the resolve to redeem Ruth and to redeem Naomi. Jesus is the greater Boaz, and his redemption is a greater redemption, isn't it? Jesus comes into a world for the purpose of redeeming. Jesus says, I've come. Here's my mission statement is what he says. I've come to seek and save the lost. That's what I'm here for. I'm not here to give stimulating theological lectures, though he taught us about the kingdom of God and the character of God and all of that. That's not, his main purpose is to reveal God. It's not to just give stimulating theological lectures where we all sit down and take notes and say, okay, I'm learning more about God. We learn more about God for sure, but he came to seek and save the lost. He's on mission. He's on mission. So we have to ask, he's on mission to redeem. And we need to ask, well, does he have the right? Does he have the right? He does have the right, doesn't he? Why does he have the right? Well, because he was born like us. He, he was born like us. Romans 5, 12 through 21 details is that Adam first sinned. All of us were in Adam. He was our federal head. We're all in Adam. He failed us. We've all failed in Adam. Christ comes as the second Adam. And so Christ has the right to redeem us because he comes as the second Adam. He comes like us, Hebrew says, like us in every way. He had to become like his brothers in every way so that he could ransom and redeem us from the curse and fear of sin. Does he have the resources? He does, he's sinless, he's sinless. Jesus has no sin. He himself has our nature, yet he's sinless, but he also is God. And so when he goes to the cross, he makes a sinless sacrifice But he's also God, and so he can absorb all of the wrath of God. He has all the resources. The question is, does he have the resolve? And maybe that's a question you've asked yourself in the past. Does Jesus actually care about me? Does he actually love me? Does he actually desire me? Does he actually notice me? Does he actually think about me? And the answer is yes. Yes, he does. He does consider you. He does know you. He has pursued you. He has As the one who has the right, he has given his resources for you. He has all the resolve. And on the cross, Jesus demonstrates his right, his resources, and his resolve, and he dies in order to redeem fallen man. And as we look to him in faith, you and I, like Ruth, who took a step of faith, it's risky to trust Jesus, isn't it? It's a risk. Tell you what, life is full of risks. All of us would take those risks if we had a crystal ball and we could see the future. It would no longer be a risk. It's a risk to trust Jesus. It's the best risk that you could ever take. I'm going to invite the worship team back up, and we're going to finish in prayer and song and fellowship after service. Father God, we thank you that you did send the, the true Redeemer, the greater Boaz, the one who redeems us from Satan's sin, death, hell, the curse, the wrath of God from all Lord, that seeks to destroy us and kill us and taint us spiritually from ourselves and our own sin and our own dark hearts and our own inclinations, you, Jesus, came. You were sent by the Father. You came in love with the resolve and mission to redeem and to save and to cleanse and to purify and to rescue and to bring us into your family. And Jesus, we sit here now on the other side of the cross and we worship you. For all of your goodness, for all of your grace, for all of your has said in our lives. I pray, Jesus, for those brothers and sisters who are here this morning who are burdened and weighed down, that they would receive your has said this morning your love, your compassion, your kindness, your goodness, your graciousness, your generosity towards them and for them, that that would become real in a new way, God, that you'd take the objective accomplishment that you have achieved and that you would apply that Holy Spirit right to our hearts. I pray for those in here this morning that are far from you or, or that don't know you, whose hearts are hard against you, and I pray that you'd take your gracious hammer and smash their heart to pieces and give them a new heart of your righteousness that receives your love and compassion and mercy and your good name. Amen.